Okay, we'll go ahead and start the question and answer uh, portion of our weekend. And when we say question and answer, first we got to understand there is no the answer to anything. What you will get is what it looks like from my perspective today when the subject comes up. It's a different answer than I would have given 20 years ago. And it might be different from what I'm going to give 20 years from now. So all you're hearing is what Scott and I are seeing today. And this is our honest evaluation of what it looks like to us. So that's all you're getting. So you can't walk away and say, well, I just heard the truth. <laughs> this may this may lead you toward your own truth, but the, there's, the truth never comes out of a little piece of paper. So with that in mind, let's Scott asked me to start. So I'm going to choose this one. How do we reconcile being true to ourselves with getting rid of self? Well, that sounds like a paradox. Uh, we have to start with the premise that getting rid of self is being true to ourself. In other words, that course of action automatically leads to the truth. If you follow what I'm saying, if we took being true to ourselves and weren't careful with it, we'd be listening to our ego for advice. What do you think we should do? (laughs) And we will be following the course we've been following. So true to our own self. I know we say that, but it has to be the ego less self that we're referring to. So when people ask me, I hope I'm not stealing another question, they say, how do I know if it's God's will? I say, ask somebody else if they think it is. Hey, do you think it's God's will for me to leave my wife and go to Guatemala with this cute little girl? Because last night it felt like it was. (laughs) And if I'm true to myself, I'm out of I'm out of here. So, I think that's what what I see today in in terms of that. And, of course, it goes back to what Chuck was saying. There's only one problem, and that is conscious separation. Um, I think that's it. Scott, you draw one. I have been sober many years and still struggle with negative inner dialogue, telling myself I should be this, I should do that, I should eat this, I should have more. What's the best way to calm this inner inner, uh, inner dialogue? <coughs> I don't know. And... Um, and now I'm going to tell you what I do. 
And what I mean by I don't know is I don't know what you should do. I really don't. I, I uh, have come up with some of the single greatest uh, uh, resolutions for problems for everyone in AA, and somehow they haven't been adopted uh, by GSO. I, I, I'm still befuddled by this, uh, but what the hell can you do? Um, I resent Scott for being overweight. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects in me that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? Well, I'm a glutton. I have low self-esteem. I'm stubborn. I'm playing God. I'm not trusting in God. I'm not living in today. I'm ashamed. Is that enough? That's enough to die from. Right? I don't need much more than that. I'm resentful at Scott for never having any money, for making more money and falling deeper into debt. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects in me that have been would be gone? Because I don't just dislike this. I re-experience the hatred. I re-experience it so that when I wake up, I water the resentment like a little flower. I want to make sure that it's developing properly. The worst thing is when I forget to hate something, you know, and a guy says, hi, and I go, hi. Oh, I hate him. Why did I do that? Damn, now I'm going to have to redouble my snubbing and looming just to, like, get back to where we were. Um, I... uh, I, I hate so that it eats my brain and my heart and turns my life black. That's my inner dialogue. Welcome to the Scott Redman Inner Dialogue Workshop. It's like when I snore. You're a loser. You're from a long line of losers. You're an asshole and you'll never amount to anything. That's the way I sleep. So, um... Uh, these resentments against myself... Uh, It says in our book, it says, when it was remorse, we were sore at ourselves. I have had to be extremely attentive to, and I have had to seek guidance. I've had to write the, uh, um, the inventory that I just described about sex, about, um, you know, I'll never forget when I got off a podium, I was one of the first long talks I ever gave in this female newcomer walked up to me and complimenting me on the talk and she walked away and I thought, Oh, she thinks I'm nice. Oh, no. <laughs> if she could have peeked into my brain for one second, she would have gone screaming into the street. Um, because I wanted to, you know, show her the serenity sausage. That's pretty much what I wanted to do. I didn't. Uh, I, uh, that was the teaching for the day that I really uh, I wanted to lay down. You know, and if anyone's going to, you know, do something to her, it ought to be a nice guy, don't you think? Um, my, <laughs> my ability to think my way around reality is, is unbelievable. And one of the ways that I do it is um, I love him. He, he loves me. I know this. I know that we love each other. If you took what I'm apt to say about myself in the course of a day or a week, and stack it up about what he thinks of me, it's absurd. It can't take place on the same planet. And I posed this question to men I sponsor lately. We do it on our retreat, and I'm going to do it again in a couple of weeks. Why am I so willing to believe the worst about myself? I'm not, I don't feel that way about you. I don't. I don't feel that way about the men I love. When they call me, I don't go, Oh, you know, 
there are a few of those guys too, believe me. But um, um, and it, it is it, it's this learned, uh, driven, um, miserable self-assessment that keeps me safe from a lot of the wonderful things that life has to offer. So for me, I have had to do that inventory. I've had to read that inventory about sex, about food, about money, about uh, being a, a father, about being a sponsor, about allowing myself to be sponsored. Now, is this self-obsession? Absolutely not. The time that I spend doing this is a fraction of the time that I used to spend pillaring myself uh, uh, calling myself to task. It's a tiny, tiny bit of it. Here's self-obsession. Writing it and not changing. That self-obsession is the continual writing, 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 and, that, and, then, and then not using six and seven as a fulcrum for change. That's self-obsession. The self-examination's not as long as I'm using it to kind of supercharge and super energize this incredible metamorphosis Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer me. Thank you so much. How does one pursue the benefits of the discipline offered by a particular religion or school of spirituality without becoming closed off to what is offered by other traditions. Other traditions. What do you think that is? Oh. Discipline offered by a particular religion or school of spirits without becoming closed off what is offered. Oh. Well, one thing that we understand is if spirituality is the top of the mountain, you can get there up any side. And you get the same view. And so if you find the path that you like, then you only are concerned with you getting to the top. And you wish well to everybody else and hope they get there. They're not mutually exclusive. We are f perfectly free to wish. Bill writes it in our theme. He says if there's somebody else gets a way to get people sober, we're going to hope they do great. We don't want to control it. So far, nobody has. But um, And he goes out of his way to say, we don't have any exclusive insight or ter spiritual territory. We just have found something that for some reason, being passed on from drunk to drunk is solving a problem that has never been solved before. And... Uh, we're just perfectly willing to give it for nothing to anybody that wants it. So I think there's no problem of uh, mutual exclusivity or whatever that term is. That um, whatever path we're on, it's fine that they're on another one. There's no right path. We all get to the top of the mountain. We can all shake hands. And then we can talk about our trip. Well, I went through the synagogue, and I got up here, and I went through here, and I went and got in the straitjacket, and 
I came from there. And so you can see it, it, that we're all getting up there one way or the other. Go ahead, Scott. <clears throat> why did we start to say the Lord's Prayer at the end of meetings, and why do we continue to? The... Uh, other prayers from the literature and the serenity prayer feel more representative of the spiritual principles of the program and also feel less Christian. Um, I, uh, um, I don't know, um, but this is my experience with it. Um, I was brought up Jewish, and uh, the Lord's Prayer... Uh, scared me, and, uh, but it didn't scare me more than alcoholism, so I just held someone's hand and mumbled until I learned it. And, uh, um, uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I personally uh, do, do not believe the Lord's Prayer should be used at AA meetings. Uh, I think it's a big mistake. Um, uh, and uh, that being said, uh, when it's said at the end of a meeting, uh, I say it. Uh, and I'll take it a step further. I have a workshop that meets at my house one day a week, and one of our biggest courses of study is uh, the Lord's Prayer from Emmett Fox's book, Sermon on the Mount. If you have not read this piece of literature, run, don't walk to get it. it it's a life-changing experience. And um, in it, Fox, in the back of the book, takes the Lord's Prayer one sentence at a time, and he writes a chapter on each sentence. And the chapter that he writes on uh, on forgiveness is mind-boggling. You can really tell how our guys were going to see him at the church and going to see him at Carnegie Hall, and they were reading him. It's so clear. They, we couldn't have written... The, chapter 5 doesn't exist without this piece of literature. It just doesn't. What he writes about resentment is extraordinary. And one of the things he writes, and I love doing this at workshops, is he says... How, if you're not forgiving someone, how can you continue to say this prayer? I always think that if he was Jewish and he had that inflection, he would have said, you should choke on the words. They should, you should choke on it. It shouldn't, shouldn't even come out of your mouth, you know. Because uh, um, uh, he really does say that. He says, it's crazy that you continue to say this when you're not uh, when you're not forgiving people. And I always listen at the end. And it's always, and it's, all, it's a little alcoholic, because everybody, I think, says it a little louder, just to go, hey, hey, you know, kind of. I always think it should be, you should hear a lot less people saying the prayer at the end, but that's just me. Uh, at any rate, um, I've been to meetings in Asia, and uh, the idea of saying the Lord's Prayer in Asia it would be bizarre. It would be a bizarre concept. It's... Uh, Buddhist house, you know, the places that I've been, you know, uh, to say that it's not a Christian prayer is comical. Um, I, I don't want to cause any controversy, and I really can't because this is question and answer, and you're not going to share during the meeting. Uh, um, and, uh, and if you, it really pisses you off, what I want to urge you to do is see him after the meeting and say, why the hell did you ask him to talk during this? This is really pissed me off. Um, so... <laughs> At any rate, I, uh, um, uh, it, it's, uh, the other thing I just want to say is that every meeting has its tradition. Every meeting is autonomous. Every meeting has 
the right approach for the meeting, and I love respecting individual meetings' right to do it their way. They have the right to do it, and to quote my good friend, even if their um, decision is remarkably stupid. Um, uh, they, they do have the right, so that's my comment on it. Thank you. That was great. Okay. Sandy. Well, I'm glad I got this one. <laughs> Thanks so much for your wisdom, serenity, and bright light. Blah, blah, blah. I, oh, I wrote this myself. <laughs> I was just kidding, Chris. I didn't want you to actually put it in the basket. <laughs> Whoever it is, thank you. How, how do you move this spiritual insight from your head to your heart? Uh, know it makes sense. Really believe, feel, and be. How do you move it? Just going through the motions um, is not working. What else is needed? How do you really get it? Well, I think Chuck said something that we may have uh, thought was very light when he was talking. He said we do it for fun. Now, that's a very important change in how you may be approaching this. Well, I'm going to move it from my head to my heart. It's not going. I have to force it. I have to do this. This does not look like fun. So what did he say later on? It's a game. Okay, the game. From the head to the heart. From the head to the heart. Well, I, so far, I'm still in jail. <laughs> okay, I'll roll the dice again. So now, even though we're still there, we're still fun. And you'll see, it'll come loose. It's fun. It's fun we're still in our head. Look at me, I'm still in my head. <laughs> light, 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 light. It's a game. Thanks. That was great, Sandy. Thanks. Okay, this doesn't have a lot of moving parts. <laughs> I have found it hard to maintain a consistent daily meditation time. What have you learned that helps you to be con consistent? Um, uh, 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 one of the teachers I've been led to is a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello. If you haven't read him or listened to him, I, I would urge you to take a look at him. He's had a big, big impact on me. And um, he, uh, there's one set of tapes. I only think there's one set of tapes. It was a, a, a failed attempt to videotape him at Fordham University in uh, New York, but they got the, the audio track from it. It's called Wake Up to Life. 
And uh, it's available a lot of different places. Uh, Dicobi has it and stuff like that. And it just had a huge impact on me. And uh, one of the things that DeMello does is he really, he doesn't call it this, but from my, stu- my readings of Emmett Fox, I came to really see that he was talking about, uh, you know, the Christ message of resist not evil. Uh, of stop taking oaths, stop making schedules, stop, stop it. You know, he says, <laughs> Fox says something so iconoclastic, probably really excited Rome a lot. He said, any religion that takes a, a lifelong oath is missing the point. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> any, and it's basically, again, you can see our framers, re, you know, listening to Fox and reading them. The whole one day at a time concept is so hooked into his interpretation and observations on the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty remarkable. Resist not evil, you know. And um, uh, so in, in DeMello's talk, he talks about being with a priest who's in his 90s, and who says to DeMello, they're kind of talking, and the priest, who's a muckety-muck in, in, the, uh, in the church, says to DeMello, for 60 years, not once have I missed my meditation time in the morning. Not one single time in 60 years. And DeMello says, boy, it sounds like an obsession. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think was the reaction the guy was looking for, really. I think he was looking for a gold star or something like that. And um, I have bullied myself and called myself a failure for missing deadlines and deciding on prayer structures and meditation structures and stuff like this. And it's exactly, my feeling now is exactly what Sandy was talking about, light, light, light. You know, 12-step work is challenging, it's difficult, it's heartbreaking at times. At the end of the day, it should be very pleasurable and enjoyable. Uh, A a real practice, a spiritual practice, something that you can do so that when things go, when you get cancer or when when things happen, you stand back and go, oh, my practice is in place. There's nothing for me to do. I'm just hitching a ride. I'm already there. That's what Sandy talks about, uh, Chuck saying this to him years ago. You're already there. You've got nowhere to go. You're already there. Yeah, but I want to go there and everything. Fine, do all that. You can do all that. You know, it's like that crazy idea I used to have. What do you want to do in sobriety? Well, I like to write well. I like to have some sex like this. like like make, make a little money. You can do all of that. Let me ask you a question. Do you have to suffer until you get it? Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, uh, if I don't suffer, Chris ain't going to suffer. He's going to suffer till he gets his. He's not going to suffer till I get mine, you know. He's not that nice. Uh, and um, the crazy idea there is that the deal, this is a design for living, that I think somehow my suffering is going to purchase the thing I crave. Beautiful way to live. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, so... I feel that way about these goals, about meditation and about prayer. These are difficult. They're painful at times. At times, meditation is painful. And at the end of the day, it should be a pleasurable, enjoyable experience. Thanks, Scott.
a typed one. I grew up in an alcoholic home and thrived on excitement until I entered Al-Anon 12 years ago. In Al-Anon, we have a saying, don't just do something, sit there. I'll tell you, that's a great one. I've learned to pray silently and meditate. Do you have any other suggestions for doing nothing well? Well, I think this statement we have on the board as a monumental plan of action. Look at that huge plan of action. (laughs) Simply allow everything to be as it is. I'm getting worn out. Are you? Man, I'm sitting here just letting everything be the way it is. Wow, getting tired. You, You can see why that is doing well. I think about that when they run the thing prior to the movies getting started, urging people to not talk during the movies. That's what I'm being urged to do vis-a-vis my life. Don't talk during your life so that you can enjoy it. Don't interrupt with thinking about it then you won't be able to see the movie very well. As a matter of fact, I started a few years ago in Tampa, and now everybody's picking up on it, that they come to me with a problem. Well, I got this and I got that. I said, okay, what I think you should do is go to the movies. Go to the movies? Yeah, just go to the movies. As a kid, didn't you like the movies? I used to look forward to the movies. I'm going to the movies. I'm going to the movies. I'm getting popcorn. I'm going to sit in the movie and buy the ticket and then go out in front and just look up and go, God, uh, the movie's about two hours and 30 minutes. I'm going to be in there. Can you watch everything while I'm in there? Because I'm just going to go to the movie. And then you come out. And he really did, I don't know how he does it, but he gets more stuff straightened out while I'm in the movie, which is doing nothing well. I think I said earlier in in that last lecture that there's something much more powerful than positive thinking, and that's not thinking. Not thinking, just being. Just be. We're here. We're in the room. Nobody wants to be somewhere else. Just right here. You know, what's he going to say next? You know, I sit here and I go, oh, boy, he's going to take a question out. Oh, boy, I'm going to watch what he says. Is that fun? That's what it's supposed to all be. Now, I could be sitting here going, what if he gives a better answer than I do? I shouldn't have asked him up here. I could ruin this for me. You follow what I'm saying? So, over. Thank you, Sandy. That was great. By the way, that was a great question. That was very deep. When I have finished a difficult task or accomplished a goal, 
I do not feel happiness or gratitude for long. I instantly focus on the next task or goal, and that makes me feel that I'm always on the run and struggling against problems. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. In the moment. It's all I got. The past is nothing. The future is absolute vapor. All I have is in the moment. Can you think of anything that does not take place in the moment? Anybody? Pardon me? There is no fear in the past and no fear in, in the future of any kind. I'm not scared that you might hit me. I'm scared that you hit me. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not scared that you, you, I'm not scared that you've hit me unless you've hit me. There's no fear in the past or the future. There's nothing exists. And even if I, if I do choose to be frightened of it, I'm frightened of a vapor. I'm frightened of an idea. Nothing, there is, there, I, I, again, I, I, I challenge anybody to come up. And, you know, I want to tell you about the, the fear. You know, I, I go through this with guys I sponsor. I have a pretty big palate today, a much bigger palate than I used to. And you hear people, I hear people go, it's all uh, self, uh, it, it's all, I'm fear-based. But, you know, I'm carbon-based, and uh, I, uh, uh, it's all about fear. Fear is worse than resentment. You know, the fact is, is now that I've been sober for a while, if a shark comes toward me, I don't get scared. I get alarmed. You know, I have a big palate. I have fear. I have alarm. I have reasonable anxiety. I have excitement. There's about 15 different things that fall in that bucket now that I used to just classify as fear because I go from coma to Mach 10. There was nothing, there was no gray area at all, you know. So I've had to be wary of that. And as guys do fear inventories, a lot of stuff gets slapped on there that really I don't think is fear at all. Um, that, that being said, when I uh, multitask, I'm not in the moment. Something closed while I'm pulling something open, while I'm thinking of the next thing that I'm going to do. I'm not in the moment. Uh, if there's anybody here who thinks that they're going to be on their deathbed and they're going to look up from their deathbed and say, damn, I wish I'd been at the office more. I'd like to talk to you after the meeting. You know, if there is such a human being here, my heart goes out to you. And um, uh, there's, there's nothing like a real, new, horrified horrifying drunk who has no facility whatsoever to live in the day, who's being tortured by what's to come, tortured by what has already happened, and is going mad. They are ravaged by thought. And when I still go through these things, I really have to take a look. Did I take, did I, you know, and I ask guys I sponsored, did you take the third step today? And if the answer is yes... My next question is, can you put your money where your mouth is? Can you actually really do this? Can you belly up and do this? Well, what do you mean? How do you do it? And then we talk about how to do it. You know, so this is a great question. I completely identify with it. And it's been my doorway to a uh, gateway to a lot of good feeling. And, uh, and if you ever get a chance and you haven't, uh, he's on our in our spiritual library, but Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now speaks to the whole notion of living in the moment as well or better than anyone I've ever, ever been exposed to. Thanks, Scott. Whoops. 
gee, that's... That question only has three words in it. I, I think I'd rather work on that one. Anyway, uh, before I get to this one, I want to say these are very good questions. Mm-hmm. They're excellent. They really have been thought about, and um, I'm, I just love it. At about 18 years sober, I think I need to change my sponsor. We don't work the steps together, and our relationship kiss, it consists of a lunch once every three months and a telephone call when my ass is on fire. (laughs) Bottom line, I don't feel actively sponsored. Should I change my sponsor? What should I look for at this stage of recovery? What are your thoughts about a sponsor in a different city? Well, I can only give you my experience. Um, when I sponsor people, the beginning of the sponsorship role is quite different from many years later. As a matter of fact, it looks something like that. It starts out with um, meeting once a week on the steps. We stay together for an hour. I give them a reading assignment. Then they come back the next week. And we both make a commitment to every Tuesday at 5 o'clock till we're finished. Finishing may take five months. Somewhere's in there. Where I have, we finished the book, we finished the steps, he's made the amends, and he's done all of that. At that point, I cancel the weekly meetings, and I say, call me anytime you want to get together. We will get together. Call me any time with a question or with a situation that is bothering you. And always go to one or two meetings where I'm there so that I can see you. And then even if you didn't call, I will know that it's time to ask you what's wrong with your face. (laughs) Am I right? And when we get your face back smiling, I will leave you alone because we're supposed to be smiling. At this point, we more or less are becoming friends. Um, And if I'm asked, in other words, we started this whole thing by reading out of the 11th step. It becomes an individual adventure. Now we're at the 11th set. We're going to take the awakening and try to go further. I'm the one who comes to one of these and finds some authors and finds some guidance. At a certain point, you can't. The journey is me by myself. It's me because I'm journeying inward. I've we've taken care of. All the past and the amends, and we've established relationships, and etc. And so it's this is the way I was sponsored, and this is how I sponsor. I do not continually to minutely give directions and control uh, at all. That's just me. I, I, I don't say that's the right way. I can only pass on 
what I do. And it seems to work pretty well. Um, if someone that I've sponsored a long time ago, he's got 20 years sobriety, and he meets somebody who uh, really gives him great insight, they become friends, and they get together and have dinner and talk about spiritual paths and all that. And I go, yay, that is, that is wonderful. So it does uh, then come down to, um, I ran into a dead end, I can't see my way out of this, and then we talk until the light comes back on and then move on. So that's my experience. That's the only one I can give you. Thanks. Okay. Sam, what about the sponsor in the other city thing? Maybe I didn't understand that. Does that mean if, if you move to another city or should you have a sponsor in another city? I think it means long distance sponsorship, I think. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, the reason I didn't relate to that is I only sponsor people I got hands-on right there. Where, and that's one of the requirements. I have to see you in a meeting every week because I want to see your face. And so I only sponsor, I see, yeah. And there's lots of people who sponsor long distance and over the phone and all that. I'm not comfortable with that. I've never done it. So for me... It's, um, I see you. Thanks, Andy. How do I attain freedom from want so as to feel whole? Um, I, 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 for me, the question is, how do I attain freedom from craving so as to feel whole? Uh, I want plenty of stuff. That's not the problem. The problem for me is when I crave stuff. And when I crave it, and then my craving becomes an attachment and an identity. So uh, if it's uh, a material thing or if it's something at work or if it's something if my wife's not buying the right kind of lingerie or if I need an upgrade to wife 6.0 or, uh, you know, something else is going on there, I... Um, uh, uh, then uh, that's okay to want it. You know, that's the difference between reality and fantasy. That's why they call it a fantasy. Uh, it's a very adolescent notion, and it, you can see it in newcomers and unfortunately sometimes way into sobriety where you think because you think something, you're going to do it. It's a very, very childish notion, which unfortunately we carry with us deep into sobriety sometimes. Um, that being said, uh, when I want it, it's fine. That's a kind of a fleeting moment. If I start craving it and then I need it, uh, and then I form an attachment to it. And then the attachment starts burrowing its way in and eating my brain like a worm. And, um, and then it becomes my, uh, my identity. Wanting that thing, attaining that thing, needing that thing, talking about that thing, meeting other people who want that thing and need that thing and are troubled by that thing. Then I just find a lot of people in AA who might be willing to talk to me about that thing. They look like they might be thinking about it right now. And my my mind reading skills guide me to those people. And um, uh, and it's it's a it's a miserable thing. So this, you know, the Buddhists say that, you know, they they'd like to stop suffering and not be afraid to die. I'll, I vote yes. I like to stop suffering and not be afraid to die. I think that's actually I I really have attained that in a lot of ways. 
I really spend very little time suffering and I'm not afraid to die. Uh, and even better these days, I'm not afraid to live, which is really a, a good thing for me. Um, so uh, what I just described is a very long process. Just to want something is a fleeting moment to cra- and, and, and really not a problem because it's, again, a fleeting moment to crave something. That's a long process of becoming obsessed, uh, be developing a craving, developing an attachment, and then turning it into an identity and having it reverberate and sort of radiate through my entire life. And it starts coloring everything I do. That's a complicated, horrifying, corrosive process. And um, my protection against it is the inventory process, allowing myself to be sponsored, knowing that there's one guy that knows everything. And as I grow in sobriety, there's just less to know. Thank God. If I'm, if I'm 25 years in and there's just as much to know as when I was six months, please kill me. Um, I just don't, I can't take it. It's just, uh, just wear me out. So I hope that's helpful. And I think that we've got so many safeguards against getting that deep that you really have to be unmindful of this for a long time to let it progress that, that far. Here's the question. Who am I? I like to say it's only three words. I thought about this um, many times, how to answer that question. How many sentences can we think of that begin with, I am? I'm old. I'm hungry. I'm horny. I'm alive. I'm free. I'm And we modify it with so many words that we become attached to the modifiers to find out who we are. I am, just finish the sentence. And what we forget is you can have an entire sentence that says, I am, with a period after. M. I am. And then, having eliminated all those modifiers, we can go inside to see what it is. And it's, it's that which is inside of us. It is the unmodified, which lends a great deal of credence to letting go. Once you let go of everything, we find out who we are. Unmodified. And the closer you get, the more you like the view. And the more you like you, because you got rid of the things that you aren't. That you were attached to. In other words, I don't think I've ever seen uh, uh, that sentence without something after the word am. Does anybody recall seeing I am? And so that would be my answer. It's a circuitous route, but it takes us to where the answer to that will be revealed. And then 
As soon as I modified it, I wouldn't be giving you the answer. I hope that made sense. <laughs> Great work, because that had me stumped. I'll tell you that, pal. That was, that was great. What is your current clarification of God? Um, I will tell you my current experience of God. On um, on May 13th, I was diagnosed with liver cancer. And on uh, June 1st, I was operated on, and they opened me up, and they thought they had one tumor going, and they found about 10 tumors in me once they opened me up. And uh, my AA family was waiting for me in the waiting room with my kid and one of my kids and my wife. And the doctor came out and said, you know, uh, we don't know if he's going to survive this if we because we're not prepped for this, so we could just, you know, close him up and move on. And Nancy said, uh, I know him pretty good, and if you just close him up, he's going to be real pissed off. I, I, uh, I, I, I guarantee it. If I have to look at him and say, honey, they found a whole lot of stuff and they closed you up, He's going to go nuts. He's not. And you tell him, you know. So at any rate, uh, uh, everybody in the room went, do something. You're in there. Do something. So uh, I began this uh, journey that I've been on um, all, you know, for these past. Really, it's just a few months, the whole thing. And uh, talking to Sandy through it every step of the way. And my friend Steve and, and my friend Brent and so many people have been. Just, just with me through the whole thing. And um, here's the deal: I have spent 22 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and not, and this is not a brag. This is my story. I've never wandered away in 22 years. I've been doing this practice for 22 years. I haven't spent any time wandering away, not going to meetings, not sponsoring people. That's just my story. So I have 22 years of consistent practice. This guy in my area used to, you know, sort of poo-poo time. What's the big deal with time? And this friend of mine used to say to him, you don't think that time's a big deal? Why don't you get some? I don't think he's talked since. Uh, at, a, at any rate, um, my son came to me in the hospital and he said to me, you know, Dad, um, I get that you're okay. I've, I've been watching you my whole life, and I understand that you're all right. And uh, he said, but I'm not. So I, know, I need to know you're going to do something about this. And what happened was is I realized that my practice had hardwired my experience of God in me, so I didn't have to do anything. I'm just along for the ride at this point. I didn't have to scramble to all of a sudden, maybe I should read the big book again. I, I, I didn't. I, oh, crap. You know, is there an express line around here somewhere? Because I'm in trouble. Um, I'm there. I'm, I'm there already. Just to quote Chuck again, I'm there, absolutely there already. So he and I are on the phone and we're talking about the exciting prospect of dying, about the prospect of living, about all of this stuff. And, um, and I'm kind of reporting every couple of days the new part of this adventure and, and, and what we're going through. 
this was not my dramatic plan. My plan was for the Scott Redman opera to begin, you know, uh, and there's no opera. There's, there's just no opera. So, uh, and then you get this great stuff. Like I got a guy who calls me screaming because his new job gave him a small office, and I start laughing. I, 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 um, I start laughing. He goes, what are you laughing at? I said, I have cancer, and you're a dick. So it gives you a little license to dig a little deeper with guys, you know. Um, So my... In in explaining what my most recent, most powerful experience of God is, I will tell you this has been my story as a member of AA. I watch people's experiences of God. Their definitions and their explanations of God have not been particularly useful for me, although I've enjoyed many of them. You know, enjoyed and have been enriched by many of them. Uh, It's it's when I watch somebody like Sandy and and my my friends uh, go through unbelievable, you know, stuff. So I hope that's helpful. That's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Just as a plant needs water to grow, a problem or worry needs attention to grow. How do you know the difference between not giving a problem attention and denial that could lead to a resentment or other problems down the road? i got to read that again. Just as the plant needs water to grow and the problem needs water to attend, how do you know the difference between not giving a problem attention and denial that could, oh, I see, between not giving a problem attention and denial that could lead to a resentment or other problems down the road? Hmm. Well, I think if I'm denying it, I need help to point out that I'm denying it. Because if I knew that I was denying it, I'd be really smart. You follow what I'm saying? I'd be beyond smart. In other words, the implication in the word is that I am fooling myself, and that's why we need each other. So, I've got my 43-year chip recently, and they said, well, how did you do it? And I said, "Um, constant, I want to stay in a constant state of receiving help. That's the secret. I want to stay in a constant state of receiving help. So I never want to assess my own situation by myself. So the beginning of this whole thing is, if there's some confusion inside of me, because it's real easy for someone else to see what's going on with me, and it's real easy for me to see what's going on with someone else, 
And so I just have a, 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 a litany of friends, Scott being one of them, Steve, people in Tampa. And um, if anybody is working, I know they're busy, and we have a little signal, and the signal is, can I run something by you? Which means I only expect to stay on the phone 45 seconds. And then I just go, and then they come right back, and they just go, you're seeing it wrong. You owe the guy an apology. Oh, really? Thank you. And I hang up. So that I was given a perspective that I can't have with myself. And we were talking outside, uh, <laughs> and I said, um, I really think we greet each other wrong. That the way we greet each other is absolutely stupid. We see each other and we go, hey, how you doing? And we really ought to say, hey, how am I doing? That's the way we ought to greet each other. Hey, how am I doing? And then we could find out how we're doing. We wouldn't be asking ourselves. So that part of that is to get around to not feeding a problem. Um, if we could take a problem and somehow have the scientists be able to remove it from us so that we could study it under a microscope, we would find that it is composed entirely of thought. They'd go, hey, this thing is 100% thought. And thought on its own starts to fade. And that's what happens to a problem. Yeah, I got a resentment against somebody who hurt me last month. If I let it six months go by, that little sucker could vanish. Heaven forbid it should vanish. So every couple of months you got to look back in there and refeel that slight that the guy gave you and pump it back up. Because left unattended, it just shrinks and shrinks. And so movies are the best for solving problems. You just leave them out there and go to the movies. Nothing should stand in the way of going to the movies. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing should ever stand in the way of going to the movies. You understand what happens when you go to the movies. The problem is no longer serious enough to keep you from going to the movies. You have given the problem the finger. By just getting popcorn. Screw you, pal. <laughs> and it shrinks. It just shrinks. You automatically shifted the priority. It's no longer a problem. It's a, I forget what the hell to call it. It's a situation that's out there, and I don't really need to do anything about it. Most things don't need anything done about them. They mainly need not thinking. Not thinking thinking. Anyway, that's it. That was great, Sandy. Thanks. Here you go. Oh, you got one? No. I'll slide it up. There we go.
I just got a new pair of glasses. I can see much better with them, but they make me a bit dizzy. I started out wearing them an hour a day, but before too long, I'm wearing the old pair again. Even though the lenses fall out and the frames are broken, I keep wearing the old pair. Every time I put on the new pair, I think this is great, but before long, I'm wearing the old pair. What is up with this, and how do I get to the new pair? One of the things that has been um, that, that uh, and I think it's just because of so many of us have such a poor assessment of ourselves and such low self-esteem. Um, uh, I've just seen over and over again alcoholics faulting themselves for not um, be, taking on new spiritual teachings in a way they think they should be adopting them as their new credo. And um, and this gets extended to 10-step work, where guys I sponsor fault themselves for having to continue to write 10 steps. And they say, do you still write 10 steps? And I say, you'll know if I stop, because the first thing I want to do is not talk to you. That's high on the list will be not talking to you. Uh, because I'm not... A, <laughs> Because I'm not going to be particularly interested in really anyone besides me. Uh, this is what keeps my eyes turned outward. So um, this, uh, the, it, I, I, I really need to, to urge patience and time. These are big life movements that we make when we take on these new glasses, these new lessons, these new applications, these new teachings. You know, I've been mentioning lots of teachings, and I've been doing this over a period of years. This is, wasn't happening to me last week that I did these, the last five teachers that I did. This has been happening to me slowly over a long, long period of time. And, you know, the other thing is, is we can take things this goes under the don't take yourself too damn seriously. Um, I called him one day. I was in really bad shape. And um, he said to me, I'm talking about this problem. And he says, uh, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to God's, God's ready room. I said, what? He said, it's like a pilot. Pilots go before they go on a, a mission. They go to the ready room. They have their boards. They fill out their stuff. They get their coordinates and all that stuff and their orders. And they go and they go, right? So I want you to show up God's ready room. I said, okay. So you want you to go to God's ready room. God's going to come in. He's going to address all you pilots. And he's going to say, okay, who's in for pain? I need a volunteer for pain. I want your arm to shoot up and say, count me in. I'm in for pain. I said, great. Okay, so make it part of your prayers. Father, I'm in for pain. Count me in. So that's what I do. I start doing it every morning. Father, I show up. I'm at the ready room in my head. I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm in for pain, and it's changing my life. I start selling franchises to God's ready room. I'm setting one up in Vegas. I am uh, selling little flight jacket pins and, um, uh, and little boards that you got to clip onto and stuff. And about three months later, uh, he and I are talking, and I wonder, well, it's kind of like God's ready room. He said, what? So what do you mean, what? God's ready room, that thing you do. He said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. It was just his way of saying, have a good day. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of his thing. You know, boy, now I can, 
I can go to the movies now that he's off my back. Uh, Light, 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 you know, light, light, light. And this stuff that I took on seriously, and I really did take it on heavy. And he took it on about as light as you could take it. And he didn't retain it. That's pretty light. Uh, um, <laughs> retention's the first sign of taking it seriously. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's important. So, and especially with these these new teachings, we, we give ourselves such a hard time when we could be going, hey, you know what, I've started playing with this new toy. It's going to take a while to find out where the buttons and all this right stuff is going to be, and let's see where this fits into the whole scheme. Terrific. Terrific. By the way, we may not finish all of these, and anybody who, uh, whose question didn't get answered, if you uh, want to retrieve it and put your name and address on the back and give it to me, I'll send you a written answer. Would you send them one, too? I'll send it to you. <laughs> no, I'll send it. I'll okay. And just hand it to either one of us. How do we draw the line between people-pleasing and, as Chuck C. would have us do, keeping people happy? Well, I think we do people-pleasing to make ourselves happy. So it's selfish. The other way is just having fun. You just tell them to go to God's ready room. It, it, in other words, Chuck is talking about out of self, out of self. And um, just imagine, just like he said, imagine that we really are God's kids. How would I behave if I really was God's kid? I would just go, what do you want me to do? And then I'd run over there because I'd know he's real. And I'd just take care of that. And you, Chuck used to say, and he told me, he said, you know, it's not. Your job to take care of yourself, that's God's job. You just go out and do what he assigned you each day. And I went, um, really? I think I'll still keep a couple hundred dollars in my wallet just in case he isn't going to take care of me. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it was almost, and I said, um, I thought God took care of those that take care of themselves. No, he doesn't do that. He takes care of everyone. Anybody who asks him, he'll take care of. And so here we have keeping people happy. You can't get any happier than that. You can't get any happier than that. I um, was in the Big Brother program, and then he finally grew up and went on. So I got in the hospice program. I'm very fascinated with... Um, Death and the um, meaning that it has and how essential it is. The biggest cause of death is birth. And um, <laughs> they go together like corn and chowder. Hey, you can't have one without the other. Do, 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 do. Anyway. Um, <laughs> 
So I wanted to see. Yeah. Um, many people say the biggest weapon the ego has against us is death. And you know the only person that dies is the ego. So no wonder there's a big deal about death. Hey, hey. We go on forever. We're an, Chuck said it. Infinite father, infinite children, infinite journey. On and on and on. This is beep. Seventy years. It's like boop. Just time to learn a quick lesson and get back in the course line up there. Da, da, da. So over at hospice, this is, this is the, the people over there are just remarkable. I'm going through training, and it went on for a long time. The nurses and the counselors and the, all the rules and this and that. And they just happened to mention in passing 50% of all people who are in the hospital, in a nursing home, wherever, old folks' home, whatever you want to call it, by themselves, never get one visitor, ever. Okay, so, let's say that someone went to see one of those persons once a week for an hour. That moment in their lives would be the highlight of the whole week. And then when that one ended, they would wait for the next hour, the following week. You would add so much. So anyway, um, the, the latest one um, <laughs> with, is an alcoholic. And um, the alcoholic is a 50-year-old woman who lives with her. 80-year-old grandmother who can barely see has had heart problems. <laughs> so I'm really there with the grandmother. You follow what I'm saying? And I'm really teaching her how to be an Al-Anon and get rid of the daughter and go have a happy life of her own. Now, the reason I'm, I'm sharing this is, so what do I do? I'm there for three hours and the daughter may come in and make a scene and go back and pass out in her bedroom. <laughs> and I can teach the grandmother how to not give a damn. You know what I mean? What do you care? You know, let her go in there. It says, alcoholism, there's nothing you can do about it, et cetera. So I've listened to her life. And she grew up in England during the Blitz. She feisty gallons. She served in the rich Lords, homes, and did the cooking and the sweeping, and she knew all of the th what silverware goes here and there. And they married to some guy who was a thief, spent his life in prison, married an alcoholic. I mean, just the, you know the drama, 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 drama. And so it's quite fascinating. You actually make a movie out of that life. So I've been doing that about three months, and one day she said to me, "You're the first person who ever listened to my life." She's 80. I'm a freaking drunk. It's over there just trying to do something. I mean, I'm just over there. I'm laughing. The daughter's coming in and out. I, was, I mean, she had tears in her eyes. Life shouldn't happen where no one ever hears you. You could hear somebody. And um, you will be transformed. It's out of self into others, and then suddenly everything's revealed 
to you. It is, um, it just happens. Just like Chuck was talking about. Just go have fun. Go over here. So that's what I think about that. Thank you so much, Sandy. This is labeled the best question. <laughs> wow. I find that if I don't plan my business and personal life, i.e. goals, schedule time, I don't get much done. These seem to me to clearly be acts of will. On the other hand, I say the third step prayer every day. How do I reconcile these two seemingly contradictory desires? I find that if I don't plan my... Um, I think that making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him so that uh, my difficulties can serve as a, uh, my victory over my difficulties or my ability to handle them in concert with my relationship with God can serve as a demonstration for new people uh, I think that idea um, has absolutely no friction and no disagreement with the notion that I should know what the hell I'm doing, going to do before 12 o'clock tonight. Um, it's, it makes great good sense. You know, what our, our book suggests is make as many plans as you want, but do not live in them. If you live in them, you're going to be in big, big trouble. Uh, because you can't live in today when you're living in them. And if you can't live in today, then you're not living in the only moment that's available to you. There's nothing else available to you. Everything else is just an idea. And ideas, like my feelings, are greatly overrated. Um, so I... Uh, um, and by the way, I'm not trying to diminish my feelings, but they are overrated because they're so mercurial. They just change too much for me to, to take them that seriously at any given time. Um, uh, so uh, I see no friction between these two at all. I, I think that it's a, a great thing for a newcomer to see, that uh, to have a robust experience of step three. You know, I take step three and I say, Pop, I'm yours. And he says, well, yeah, I knew that. I'm God. I I had a strong feeling that that was true, and, uh, but it's a very nice gesture, and I really appreciate it. What the hell are you talking about? And I go, well, this is what I mean. This is, these resentments, these fears, this sexual misconduct, these difficulties, these problems, this past, this future. Can you help me? Oh, yeah, no, I can do something about that. We can have a relationship. I can do your work. You can do my work. We can find different ways of doing stuff together. And, uh, but it's going to have little permanent or lasting effect unless you really kind of get to work here and get the rubber to the road and start doing some stuff. That change thing again. All of this is very nice to think about and write about and stuff, but if I'm not using it as a, a lever for change, it's a pretty worthless endeavor. So that being said, uh, making that decision, that gorgeous decision, and I, I, you know, when people say that step three is just a decision, um, that's not the way I experience it. I experience it as a decision, as an action, as a living, breathing part of my life, as something I can demonstrate all the time, as, as something that's, uh, if I take a look at the third step prayer, as a, a wonderful, intrinsic part of my life, uh, a great source of joy and of uh, fact-finding and fact-facing. So 
Um, I see no problem between those two. It makes very good sense to me that I would do both. Thanks, buddy. We're getting near the end of the time. I think we'll do, um, maybe I'm just tired. Um, yeah, I don't think we can get to all of them. Why don't, why don't we take two more each? Oh, we just did the best one, so I don't know. What oh, all right. Do. We'll do two more each, and then um, the rest, as I say, if you wrote one that didn't get answered and you want a written answer, I'll be glad to get it there. So here we go. How does one survive in the business life corporate America by practicing the principles in all our affairs? Well, I'm going to I'm going to say that um, business that what makes business go money. I mean, that's anybody in business knows that money is the deal. And I don't know if you've noticed, but. Money has a warning label on it. Did you know that? It says, in God we trust. It's trying to warn you, don't trust money to make you happy. In God we trust. So, success in business, if it's supposed to produce happiness is a joke. That's what I, the point that is so missing. If I succeed, if this advances, I will get money and happiness. And so what Chuck was trying to say, and he, of course he didn't really go into details about how he went back and practiced business spiritually, but he was talking about near the end the bid and, the, and that they weren't letting other people bid against Chuck. Chuck was in the um, supermarket layout, install the freezers and the counters and the layout, etc. business. And um, he would talk to the customer and say, Whatever you want is going to get done, and you're going to be happy with it. So they would agree upon a price or whatever it was, and then they'd start. And then at some point, maybe the uh, guy would say, well, actually, I really wanted the freezers on this side. Well, when you do that late in the um, process, it can't be done for the original agreed-upon amount. And so Chuck would say, don't worry, I'll move them over there at my expense. Because I just want you to be happy with them. And the people, now that takes a big leap of faith. You're out of business. You can't just voluntarily decide to take a loss. Nobody would let them do it. The offer itself was so overpowering. That they would go, no, 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 you move it, but you have to give me the cost on moving it. And in other words, they just knew all he wanted to do was use his skills to make them happy. Now, that takes a big leap of faith. 
to realize that making someone else happy is the only reason that you are doing whatever you're doing. Um, when I was interviewing for a job and I desperately needed with six kids, and God, we were broke. Even though I've been sober a number of years, I had a hard time making money. And I'm interviewing for a, for a job that uh, Marine General's the head of the place and the Marine Colonel is the general counsel, and I'm interviewing in the general counsel's office. And we get through talking, and, he, and I really wasn't, didn't have the qualifications they really needed. And he said, by the way, why would you leave the Marine Corps? And I went, gee. So I said, well, I was thrown out for drinking. But I've been in AA for 10 years, and I really know that I could learn how to do this job. And he said, okay, well, we'll let you know. And about three weeks later, the personnel office called and said, if you want the job, it's yours. And uh, I did a great job. Somehow I just knew how to do it, and years later we were friends. And he said, do you ever wonder why I hired you? And I said, yeah, I often did wonder why you hired me. (laughs) And he said, I just wonder what it would be like to work with someone that honest. So we can't believe that these spiritual principles could possibly work in the business world. You can't. You can't lay it out in a business manual. So what did Chuck say to do? Let's pretend they work and do them. Let's pretend they work and do them. And that's what he did. So that's the only... I know it sounds vague. It almost sounds like a cop-out. But I really believe that's the answer. All right, you got one. Good. Good. Thanks for a great answer. It didn't sound vague to me, buddy. I'll tell you that. All right. How do you silence your mind? Um, sometimes from practice and meditation, I'm able to silence my mind, and sometimes I can't. So what I do, try to do is I try to pull back from the stream and watch it. So, um, and one of my teachers suggests doing this thing, which is a gorgeous thing. So sometimes I meditate, and I can go to a quiet place. I do different exercises to try to get quiet. And sometimes I just live in a psychological theme park, and I'm not going to get quiet. It ain't. It's just. It ain't going to happen, babe. You know, it's just not going to happen. And um, uh, incoming, incoming. And um, uh, uh, so um, sometimes I can attain that quietness, and when I can't, I try to rip the Velcro off, step back, and just watch the stream, and be be the watcher. And when I'm able to do that, it's a great feeling. And, um, and one of my teachers suggests <laughs> saying, hmm, thinking. And she says, touch the thought like a feather on a bubble and bless the thought and go back to being quiet. And then when the next thought comes up or the next noise, go, hmm, thinking. <laughs> and bless the thought and touch it as lightly as you can, like a feather on a bubble, and go back to that place. It's really very lovely. Also, the thing that uh, guys I sponsor and I have been working on over a period of time is there's a very nice idea in our book. It says uh, in step 11, all through the day, we uh, stop and take a breath and ask for an intuitive thought. It's a very nice idea. To actually do it is a whole other thing. 
and to have a practice where you can go, hmm, thinking, and take a moment and actually be refreshed and not just remember, oh, I should be stopping during the day and getting refreshed, um, but to really have a practice where you have a way to do that. Again, that's rubber on the road. That's, that's really seeing your practice in action. Thanks, Scott.